So let's read this passage together from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. A week later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John away by themselves, and he went up on a high mountain. There he was transformed before their eyes. His clothes shone with a whiteness that no laundry on earth could match. Elijah appeared to them in Moses 2, and they were talking with Jesus. Teacher, said Peter as he saw this, it's great to be here. I tell you what, we'll make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my son, the son I love. Listen to him. Then quite suddenly they looked around and saw nobody there anymore, only Jesus with them. This is God's word. I was talking with a friend uh, not too long ago, and he's a science teacher in high school. And I was asking him what it is that he loves about his job, what makes him want to keep coming back day after day and year after year. And, and sure, there's lots of things with being a teacher that aren't great, especially in Oklahoma. The pay is terrible. Uh, conditions aren't that great. There's a lot of school systems, systems that aren't great. But he said, beyond the shadow of a doubt, what keeps him coming back as a teacher, particularly a science teacher, is when students come to class and it's, it's the time of the year for them to get out the microscopes. And when students get the Petri dishes and they put, you know, there's dust in there or there's a skin cell or something, and they take it and put it under the microscope, and something which to that point for them had been really nothing or dust or skin cell, you know, whatever, it really was meaningless, in a moment they see that this tiny little particle goes from something that seems to be lifeless to this world of amazement and wonder and life and activity. He said, and it's that moment, that, that aha moment, when something goes from being dead and lifeless to alive and living and amazing. He said, that's the moment that keeps them coming back. It's similar even to when, uh, to when you have a crush on somebody. And you like them from a distance, maybe. Maybe you've seen them on the other side uh, of the grass out here. Maybe you've seen them on the other side of the classroom. Or maybe you've seen them at a party or something. And uh, they're cute, or he's good-looking. And, um, you know, there's kind of some fascination there. But, you know, it's, it's all just maybes and mites. This, this won't ever be anything. But then it becomes something. And that might becomes reality, and you go on a date, or he asks you out, or she says yes, or whatever it is, and, and then you start kind of falling in love, or doing that thing that we call falling in love, and you get infatuated with each other, and it's amazing, right? You want to spend all the time with this person, and inevitably you'll come to me the next, the next week and be like, man, we stayed up till four in the morning talking, we had everything in common. You know how it goes if you've been there. That... That, that moment when things go from being a possibility, a might, to real. For Jesus here with these disciples, they were in need of an aha moment. They were in need of something to help them go from, yeah, Jesus, um, you just told us that you're going to die. We've given everything to follow you. We're all in. But you just told us that you're going to die. But there's more than that. You just told us that if we want to follow you and if we want to be part of what you're doing in this world, that, that we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. 
We need to be ready to die for the sake and for the cause. And so imagine Peter and the other disciples here with James and John thinking, Jesus, it sure would be great if you could throw us a bone, if you could give us some reassurance that this is all going to be worth it. And friends, in this passage tonight, things get real for them. God, as it were, pulls back the curtain on exactly who Jesus is. And it totally freaks them out. But I would say it does more than that. It transforms them. And what went from a world of mites and maybes, kind of knowing who Jesus is a little bit, goes to this very real sense of we're all in. We're following you with everything that we have. We are worshiping you. We've seen your glory. And so as we look at this tonight, what I want to do in the first is to set up this idea of glory. And I want to do that by talking about how we naturally, as people, seek glory. And then we're going to look at the glory of Jesus that is revealed in this passage and that Mark's talking about here. The glory that Jesus has. And finally, we're going to look at the glory that Jesus gives. That he doesn't hold on to his glory, he shares it with us. So let's do that together. Right here, the glory that we seek. Um, so I think if we're ever going to understand what's going on here, we have to start here. And let me start by saying this. Uh, the Bible, when it uses the word glory and when it talks about holiness and glory and splendor, those are very Christian-y, kind of religious-sounding words that many times we don't really know what they mean. We might even use them, you know, to God be the glory or uh, glorify your name, God, or whatever. may even sing them, but what does that really mean? Um, the Bible, when it uses the word glory, particularly kind of coming out of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, that word, the, the weight and the meaning, or the meaning of that word, glory, is weight. For something to have glory means that it is weighty, that it has value, gravity, importance. Okay, so this notion of glory is that something is weighty, there's permanence, it matters. And I want to suggest that, that we want glory. That there, there is this universal desire in part of us that wants glory. We are, by nature, glory seekers. We want to matter. You want your life to matter. You want your ideas to matter. You want people to listen to you. In fact, you're offended sometimes when they don't or when they answer a text message when you're talking to them or when they you know, just totally tune you out. You want to matter. You think you matter. You want to matter. You, you are seeking glory. And part of that isn't bad. Part of that's not bad. It's natural. And I would even say it's the way God made you. See, in the, in the narrative and the story of Scripture, God made humans in His image. And that doesn't mean that we are gods, but it does mean that He created us with value and with dignity and worth, with, with glory with a certain derived glory that comes from God's very being. And so it's right and natural for you to feel like your life matters. 
And I know there are some of you who really wrestle and struggle with depression and self-hatred and wondering that, do I matter? Does anyone like me? But I think at some level you can all grasp that you want to. You want to think that there is something about you that matters, that has weight and gravity. And that's okay. But there's a problem because we aren't in that state anymore. Sin has come into the world and into our own lives and it has taken that agenda and it has caused a train wreck in us. Because we're no longer okay with having this derived glory from God. We want all the glory. We want as much glory as we can get. We want everyone around us to think we're the most important. We are angry when others get to be more popular than we do or when they're better looking than we are. That means they're going to get more glory and attention and have more weight given to them by others. We get envious when people have more than we do. We are addicted to glory. We want it in the number of likes we get on our pictures and the number of group texts we're on. We get offended when people don't reply really quickly to our text messages because we think they should because we're important. And sin comes in and it takes this right longing and it just screws it all up. And it messes with us and it, and it really degrades us. And what this does over time, what this incessant, impulsive, glory-seeking does isn't just a small thing. It's not just that we become selfish. We become the the thing that is worse than selfish. We become self-absorbed. We become self-consumed. We can't really imagine a world where we aren't at the center of it. And though we would never really say that, Right, and you would never acknowledge that to someone. Functionally, many of us live as if we are at the center of this world and that everything kind of revolves around me and my schedule and my agenda and we get so offended when others don't want to play that game with us. Can you imagine why they don't? Because they have their own agenda that they're asking you to buy into. And so everybody's out there competing for each other's glory. Sin has screwed this all up. And I mean all of us. We love glory. Uh, I read an article last fall in the New York Times uh, by editorialist, opinion, opinion column writer named Richard Cohen. And he talks about this guy named Nicholas Winston. Have you all ever heard that name, Nicholas Winston? He's 105 years old, and he was an immigrant to London uh, from a German Jewish family in the 20s and 30s, 20s or 30s. Uh, immigrated over to London to escape all that was going on in what was becoming Nazi Germany and the Third Reich and all of that before World War II. And uh, as he moved to London, he got educated and he became a stockbroker uh, in the London Stock Exchange, and he did quite well. And in 1939, seeing what was going to be coming about in Germany uh, in the next few years with Hitler and the Third Reich, uh, This guy, Nicholas Winston, began to use his own money and to raise money from those around him to begin to adopt children out of Germany to pay for them to get on trains and to come to London. 
And he didn't do this a little bit. He rescued, redeemed, paid for 669 kids. And when they made their way to London, he got them placed in foster care and got them people, uh, got people to adopt them upon their arrival at the train station. The thing that's most amazing about Nicholas Winston is that nobody knew this about him until 1988. He did that in 1939. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anyone, even his wife. He did it. In 1988, uh, there began to be rumblings of his story, and eventually he said, yeah, I I did that, but still really didn't want any kind of accolade or acknowledgement for it at all. This self-effacement, which was, it's beautiful. And Richard Cohen, the columnist, says this. He says, "Uh, such discretion is riveting in our exhibitionist age. To live today is to self-promote or perish. Social media tugs the private into the public sphere with an almost irreversible, irresistible force. Be followed, be friended, or be forgotten. You feel that, I feel that. That need for others to acknowledge us and to be out there and to be found out and to be liked and to be seen, to be valued, to be glorified. We are glory seekers. We're all trying to justify our existence in some way. And so I want to pause right here and I want you to look down at the sheet in front of you. And I want us to think through this first question right there. Take 60 seconds and kind of be honest with yourself. No one has to see it. You don't have to share it with anybody. But from whom in your life are you seeking glory? Or I may ask it this way. uh, Whose approval are you looking for? Who are you trying to get to notice you? And a related question right after it. How are you seeking that glory? In what ways do you see yourself manipulating or using others and other circumstances for your own benefit? So take just a few seconds and look at that. Okay. Again, I, I think we have to start there to begin to talk about glory on an, on an us level so we can understand it now on a level that's, that's going on in this passage on a Jesus level. Because what happens in this passage here with Jesus is all about God revealing Jesus' glory. As I mentioned, it's like God is pulling back the curtain and giving these disciples and us now through the written word. He's giving us this glimpse at who Jesus really is. And it's amazing. Uh, the passage, I acknowledge it if you read it, and we just need to kind of say that it is kind of weird. It's kind of fantastical, and, and it's crazy almost. And that's because we're not Jewish. And really, if you're a Christian, because you really don't know the Old Testament. And that's okay. I, I don't really either, as well as maybe I should or want to. But if we did, if we were good Jews or if we were good Christians who knew our Old Testaments, this wouldn't be as crazy, and here's why. Because in the Old Testament, 
God would appear to his people on several occasions, particularly up on mountains, but on several occasions in a very definitive and powerful way. And he would do that through showing up in a cloud. And what's what theologians call the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God would descend and people would know that God's presence was there. It happened most famously maybe uh, at Mount Sinai with Moses. As Moses goes up to receive God's instruction, his revelation on how this new nation Israel was to live and how were they to uh, treat each other and how were they to worship and treat those around them. And God reveals to him eventually the Ten Commandments while he's up on the mountain. And while Moses is up there, he's having this conversation with God and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, whoa, 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 Moses, you have to understand this. You can't see my glory. In fact, no one can see my glory and live. It's too much. I'm too pure. I'm too radiant. I'm too weighty for you. It will destroy you. So Moses says, well, what about a glimpse? And God says, okay, hide in the cleft of this rock, and I will pass by. And after I pass by, you can look at the back side of me, and that will be enough. And so he does, and that unfolds. And as Exodus 33 and 34 have it, when Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is glowing. It's shining like the sun, brighter than anything anyone's ever seen. It, it sounds crazy, and it is But it became awkward for Moses that it goes on to say that people couldn't talk to him without him wearing this veil because his face was shining so brightly. He got a glimpse of God's glory. Later in 2 Chronicles 5, after David and the Israelites constructed the temple, they had finished making all the preparations and the sacrifices and purification. And it was time for God to come and make his presence known amidst the people. And what happened? The glory cloud showed up, and the priests who were there, they, it put them on their faces. They were totally undone at God's, glo- at God's glory as He showed up. And so here on the mountain with these three disciples, Jesus is right before them, and He is transformed. He is transfigured into bright whiteness. In fact, Mark is struggling to find the words to describe how white He is. This translation said that that no laundry could produce. Other ones say that no bleach could make happen. He was absolutely, totally pure and white. It's the glory is showing up. And then he goes on to say that Moses and and Elijah are here. And this is too much for Peter, in fact. And it says that he just starts talking because he was terrified. He's like, this is great. This is awesome. We're all all here together. Let's have a party. I'll make a tent for you guys and we'll sit down and talk. And Mark, I love it. Uh, Why would Mark say this unless he's just saying, well, Peter said this. He, He makes Peter look stupid. He said, Peter started talking because he was running his mouth. That's what Peter does. He was terrified. He didn't shut up. So here's Peter, who we love, because that's kind of us, and, you know, not really getting Jesus and understanding it all. Peter doesn't either. And he says, man, this is great. Let's hang out for a while. You know, Moses teaches a few things. Elijah teaches a few things. Jesus, maybe you can chime in a little bit. And God does something amazing. He almost comes in as 
is like a rebuke to Peter. It's like, Peter, shh. This is my son. Yes, Moses was the great deliverer, kind of par excellence in the Old Testament. He was the man. Yes, Elijah was the great prophet. But Jesus is the greater Moses who came to deliver his people once and for all, not just from slavery, but from sin and everything that has you enslaved. Peter, Jesus isn't just another great prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He's the greatest Elijah who didn't just come to give people the words of God. He is the word of God, Peter. This is my son, the one whom I love. Listen to him. And then the cloud comes down. The glory is here. And then suddenly it's gone. Moses disappears. Elijah disappears. But Jesus remains. And friends, here's what that means. That whereas before no one could be in God's presence and live, no one could even look at God's presence, there is now a way for man to be in God's presence and not be totally done away with not be totally put out and put away by His glory. And the way for that to happen is Jesus. That He is the bridge of the chasm between our infinite sinfulness against an infinitely holy God. Jesus remains here. N.T. Wright, who's a, a great New Testament scholar from England who has many great things to say and some not so great things to say, uh, but he says this, and it's great. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh. Life itself has walked in our midst. Christianity is either that or it is nothing. Y'all, these people, they were like you and me. They weren't super Christians. They weren't the most holy people. They were normal people who Jesus was calling to follow him, and they were trying, and they were kind of bumbling their way along. They were seeing him do amazing things, but they were normal people. We have to understand that. They are here on the mountain, and they had at that moment a choice with what do we do with Jesus. Because he's just told us that we're going to have to die or be ready to die if we want to follow him. And he said he's going to die. And then this all happens. Good grief, what do we do? We either have to decide if this is a total sham and just ditch the whole thing, or if it's not, we've got to go all in. Friends, what went from kind of vague and hazy and foggy on the mountain became real. And when that happens in someone's life with Jesus, you go from kind of maybe believing, when it becomes real, you start to worship. And you realize this man, this person, is unlike anybody else I've ever seen. His glory is so far-reaching, so transcendent, so other. His weightiness is so heavy that I've got to worship Him. He's God. He deserves all of me. I'm all in. 
This is the aha moment for the disciples. This is the time and the place where they realize, well, I guess this is what we're going to do. We saw it. We're all in. What about you? Second question there in front of you. Has Jesus' glory captured you? Is there some sense of Him being real enough to you to where you say, I believe, I can't not believe. So has His glory captured you? If so, what are the evidences of that in your life? If not, if it's not real to you, do you want it to be? And if you do want it to be, what do you think is keeping you from seeing Him truly and worshiping Him? So think about that for 60 seconds, and we'll finish up. Okay, thirdly tonight, I want us to talk about the glory that Jesus gives. What I've just said is that if you are ever going to be willing to die to your own agendas, to your own self-glory parade and seeking, then you have to behold the one whose glory is so much greater and whose life is so much more compelling than yours. But not just that, because if that's all that Jesus did, he would just be a great example that we looked at and said, ooh, I want to be like him. I want to be moral like Him. I want to serve people like Jesus served people. But that's not Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has the most glory, and yet He gives His glory away. He gives His glory away. He doesn't hold on to what's so amazing and transforming about Him. So think about this. On the mountain... The disciples are seeing His utter weight and beauty and magnificence and brilliance and radiance and glory. Everything that Jesus is, they are seeing right in front of them. But now extrapolate and take that picture toward the cross, which is where we're heading this semester. And the the travesty and the beautiful... the beautiful mystery of what's happening at the cross is that the Lord of glory, this perfect one, totally holy, goes to the cross so that He might offer His holiness and His perfect righteousness to people who hate Him. To people like you and me who want to seek our own glory, who don't want Jesus to interfere in our worlds. Jesus goes to the cross and offers His glory and His righteousness to sinners who have sinned primarily against Him. He gives His glory to His enemies. And in exchange for that, He takes all of our pollution, He takes all of our sinfulness, He takes all of our rebellion... And He takes it on Himself. His radiance, His purity, His whiteness, our filthiness, the transaction of the cross. Consider also that in the cross, Jesus, though He was God and though He was magnificent and lifted up and the Prince of Heaven had everything that He could want. 
did not come to gather praise as the rightful king in, the, in, in his time on earth. He didn't. He came to serve as a loving king. He came to give his life up for you, for sinners, for people who, again, who hated him. He is giving his glory so that your dignity, so that your righteousness might be restored. It's crazy. It's so opposite anything that we would do. But there's more. Consider that Jesus, after the cross, after the resurrection, after he ascends back to heaven, he doesn't just go up there and like sit on the throne and chill forever until he and and God decided it's time to come back to earth. No, it says that right now Jesus in His glory, is sharing His glory with us by praying for us and by sending His Spirit to be at work in us so that we, as His people, conformed in His image more and more as His church, continue to experience His glory. So that when we gather to worship as a body, if you are in Christ, you know that there is something happening when you sing these songs and when you hear the word and when you pray together and when you take the Lord's Supper together. There's something real happening. Jesus is sharing himself with you still. He is the one who has glory and yet gives it. Um, Rick Riley, I'll finish with this uh, Article. Rick Riley is a sports columnist. He worked for Sports Illustrated for many years, then went to ESPN, and I think finally has kind of hung it up. Uh, He wrote some really funny books. He was a great writer. He wrote a story in 2002 called The Play of the Year. This was when he was still with Sports Illustrated. And he tells it like this. I'm just going to read a a small section of it. He says, In three years on the the Northwest High School football team, Jake had never run with the ball and had never made a tackle. He barely ever stepped on the field. Well, that would be about right for a kid with a chromosomal disorder, which which was a common cause of mental retardation. But every day after attending special ed classes, Jake races to the Northwest practice fields, football, basketball, track. He never plays, but he never misses a practice. That's why it seemed crazy when with five seconds left in the game, the Northwest was losing 42-0. to Jake trotted out on the field, and the plan was for him to take a knee. And Jake's coach called a timeout and met the opposing opposing coach at midfield, and they began to talk about what was going to happen. And all all of the fans could see that the opposing coach, whose name was Coach DeWitt, was shaking his head and waving his arms, becoming angry even. And finally, the ref stepped out there. And what became apparent was that Coach DeWitt was getting angry because the other coach for Northwest High School was telling him that Jake was going to go out and take a knee. And he said, no, he's not. I want him to score. And so as it happened, they lined up behind the ball. Jake went out there. And he was prepared to take a knee, which is what he had practiced and practiced so many times. And his teammates said, no, Jake, stand up and run. And so he did. He didn't know what to do. So he started running the wrong way. And he's running towards his own goal. And the team comes after him. He's like, no, Jake, other way. And they point him and they get him going to right, toward the right end zone. And as he approaches the other team, they split open like peasants for a king. And Jake ran, sprinted, grinning ear to ear to the end zone for the touchdown. 
We love stuff like that, y'all. We do. Let's just kind of collectively say, ah, <laughs> ah. If you don't, if your heart doesn't grab onto that and say that is at least sweet, if not amazing, then I don't know if you're alive. <laughs> you can leave right now. Um, the reason that we love stuff like that is that this person who never thought they would get glory, who never had in and of themselves an ability to even grab glory, has it given to him. And he is celebrated for that. Friends, Christianity is not this moralistic charge to go be like Jesus and to go be nice like Jesus and to serve like him or to do good things. It's not. That is moralism. That is religion. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus came to tell his followers. Christianity is about one man who rightly had all the glory in the world and who did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to and grasped at, but came and willingly laid it down so that you, so that me, so that glory seekers like us might receive the only glory that matters and be changed. And that once we have that, once our dignity and our righteousness has been restored, then we move out of the world not needing to seek it from others and not having to grab it from everyone, but we move out full of the gospel and full of Jesus' grace in us, and we move out seeking to give it to others. And that's how the gospel goes. That's how the mission of God carries out in the world. It's an invitation for you to come to Jesus, receive what was yours, but what was lost in the fall, but what can be yours again through Him. And if you are His, the call is for you to take what you've been given out into the world and to give yourself for others. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.